0: This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The achievement gap between rich and poor students has hardly budged in 50 years, but what does that even mean? And Is there anything teachers can do about it? Plus, plagiarism, we know it when we see it, but how can we stop it? Our teachers have some ideas. And students asking to go to the bathroom happens every day. Are we hurting students' health by restricting when they can go? Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers Podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined as always by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, you're back for a second week in a row. Good to see you again.
1: Hey, thank you.
0: And you last week you were your kids were coming back from spring break, so now you've had a week of, of students in class. What do you teach?
1: Uh, I teach high school
0: English. And I'm assuming it all went well coming back from spring break.
1: The students were back. The student engagement was uh, another question entirely. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, Luann, two weeks in a row, thank you so much for being here. Also in the studio here in Kansas City, Lynn Shipley, what do you teach?
2: I am an instructional coach, but I uh, previously taught computers.
0: And this is at the middle school level, correct?
2: Middle school, uh, yes.
0: So Lynn and Luann here in Kansas City. And joining us via Skype from Chicago, Kevin Vanderporten. Welcome back to the show. What do you teach?
3: I teach high school uh, U.S. history to
0: sophomores. So Kevin, again, joining us from Chicago. Lynn and Luann are in the Kansas City area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and gives you a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox every Friday afternoon just before you get off work. So sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The recent college admissions cheating scandal has put into stark relief the yawning gap between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to education in the U.S. We talked about that scandal last week. Luann was on the show, and rightfully it's received a lot of attention. And the parents, accused of bribing their kids' way into elite colleges, have been roundly disparaged, mocked, and criticized for the past few weeks now. But there's another bit of news that may be even more dispiriting for teachers concerned about the chasm between privileged and poor students. A new analysis of decades worth of testing data by nonprofit Education Next finds that the achievement gap between the richest and poorest American students has remained essentially unchanged over the past half century. It's not for lack of trying. As the report's authors note, there have been many reforms in recent years intended to try and close the achievement gap. You think of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, among other measures. Still, the Education Next report states this, quote, the achievement gap between haves and have-nots in the U.S. remains as large as it was in 1966. That gap has not widened, but neither has it closed." End quote. So I'll go back to that education next research in just a minute. But first, I, I wanted to ask, as teachers, do you think you have a role or should you have a role in uh, trying to close the achievement gap? Is this something that you think about daily in your jobs?
3: Sure. I mean, I, I can start. I do think quite a bit about, um, and I talk quite a bit about income inequality uh, in my class. I do talk quite a bit about class in general and social status. Most of my students are, I would say, lower class or lower middle class. And I talk to them about, obviously, the importance of, you know, going to college. But even if you don't necessarily want to go to college, the idea of, like, vocational training, you know. And I've also talked quite a bit about, like, what is the American dream? Because my image of what the American dream was when I was in high school is very different from what my students view the American dream today. Um so when in terms of closing the achievement gap I was a little bit disappointed that you know there hasn't been any progress but at the same time I'm not necessarily surprised especially after you know last week's revelations about the uh, the cheating scandal and bribery so yeah. uh,
0: and Kevin before we move on uh, you said your conception of the American dream when you were in high school much different from your own students um thoughts about the American dream how so
3: So my perception of the american dream so when i was in high school about 20 years ago was the usual like the big house with the picket fence you know uh wife two kids um but when i ask my students what it is it's usually a well-paying job that's like the idea of an american dream um you know all the benefits that you know come with a well-paying job i don't necessarily delve into with them but i can imagine you know the ability to own your own home possibly your apartment or to be able to travel but it's just such a basic thing as having a well-paying job.
0: Yeah. Uh, for Lynn and Luann here in the studio in Kansas City, um, the news that the achievement gap between rich and poor in America essentially has remained unchanged over the past 50 years. How do you take that news? Is that uh, dispiriting to you? Is it uh, um, a surprise? Kevin says it's not a, necessarily a surprise to him.
2: It's it's not a surprise at all. I mean, when you look at the different reforms, uh and what the achievement gap actually measures, it's just based upon a lot of middle class values. So if you I go into have, that a
0: little bit more, what do you mean by that?
2: Um, well, I mean that uh, education was created not for the poor or yeah. uh, and in the creation of it for the rich. They had exclusive schools. So the middle class values that we think that everyone should have in this country, even as diverse as it is, um, it completely negates the experiences and values that other cultures have. So, for example, looking at a test, if someone asks a test that Johnny had supper last night and you have kids that have no idea what supper is because that's not what they call it, replaces it with the word dinner, according to this uh, other article, kids answer the question better. A lot of these questions are based out of middle-class statements that a lot of our kids don't have access to. And
0: so you think in the way that we've conceived the achievement gap um, we're trying to have— Many classes of students strive towards a vision of middle-class America that maybe not necessarily they they should be.
2: Yes, there are, there really doesn't even exist. It existed on TV. I mean, you had Leave It the Beaver when I was growing up, and all these other right. wonderful shows that depicted these white families, you know, Picket Fence, like uh, the young man was, uh, the other young man was just saying. But those aren't the values I had, and. They were certainly middle class. I mean, I never did not live in a house our parents did not own. So I don't believe that the uh, test actually measure what children are capable of learning.
0: Yeah, Uh, I do want to get into what uh, Lynn was starting to touch upon earlier. I do want to uh, first put a bit more detail on this Education Next analysis. The researchers looked at results from dozens of standardized measures of achievement, mainly drawn from tests like the National Assessment of Educational Progress or NAEP. And the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, and say what you will about standardized tests, but those are two long standing and generally highly regarded standardized tests. Um, they ended up looking at data for more than 2.7 million students over 47 years. They cross referenced the achievement data with measures of socioeconomic status as measured by students' responses to questions about their parents' own educational level and the amount and type of home possessions. Um, so if this analysis is accurate. Um, It suggests what schools have been doing to try and close an achievement gap has not worked. But I wanted to ask, uh, kind of really based upon what Lynn said, what really is your feeling about the term achievement gap?
3: Uh, I think, sorry, do you want to go ahead? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think it definitely has a negative connotation. And when I keep thinking about the phrase achievement (laughs) gap, I keep thinking like, well, what does it mean? Um, To sort of achieve success. Uh, For my students, again, um, we're really looking at can you, a lot of them actually end up going straight to a community college for two years. And if it's a big deal, if they then go to a four year university in the city, you know, UIC or DePaul or Loyola. So I think it gets back to the idea of what are we doing as teachers to prepare our students for success. And I think it looks differently depending on which school you're at prepping students for the AP exam and uh, college acceptance letters and different things like that. For me, when students come back and I find out, you know, they have a job, you know, if they have their own apartment, to me, that's what success looks like. It's not necessarily a, you know, a PSAT or an SAT score.
2: Yeah, I think we have to change what success looks like. Um, Achievement gap is such a, um, it's such a general term that's just thrown out for everyone And it all depends on what a child is is trying to achieve. I mean, we have students that, again, that in in middle school know that they don't want to go to college. Some want to be hairstylists. Others want to work in computers. Two very different fields, but they both are successes or successful careers that students can have. So the word achievement gap, it really targets people to me of color and of uh, lower socioeconomic status.
0: How do you think it negatively affects your students or the students you've worked with?
2: Well, the the idea that, (laughs) one, that in order to be successful, you need to have all A's. Uh, We can over-inflate grades, which often happens. Uh, We can teach, lower our standards or what's important so that your grade uh, is not really measuring what it is you should be learning at that age. There's so many different ways to scam and game the system to make kids feel like they're achieving at a higher level, and they're not. So uh, we have to be very clear about what it is that we want our students to learn, what we want them to walk away with in order to be successful. It does not necessarily translate into an A grade. Um, I grew up with the saying that, you know, A students become doctors, B students become lawyers, C students become millionaires, (laughs) and it's because they have to work really hard to get where they need to go. So that that measured success in a completely different way in my household.
0: Yeah. Um, I think maybe even expanding on this idea of, of skepticism towards the idea of an actual achievement gap, um, here in our own backyard in Kansas City, a researcher at the University of Kansas a few years ago, a man named Dr. Yang Zhao, uh, published a paper basically saying the term achievement gap, as we've long defined it, Um, The achievement gap will never be closed because, as he says, it's based on a fake idea of meritocracy. Zhao writes, and I'll quote at length here, "...as long as merit remains defined as outcomes of one or two types of standardized tests or existing education credentials..." The gap is not likely to be closed. It is theoretically impossible to close the gap not because poor and minority children are inherently incapable of learning, but because they start much worse off than their wealthier and Caucasian peers and the measures used to define educational achievements such as reading, math, and appropriate school behaviors. End quote. What do you think? Is the concept of an achievement gap basically um, useless? Should we shelve it or what's another way to look at it?
3: I definitely, I definitely uh, support shelving it. I think that there's always going to be your sort of your haves and have nots. I I don't want to, I mean, I do sound very sort of pessimistic, but I just think that's the case. In some of the readings we did, you know, to get ready for this podcast, there's a study from 1966, which says that, you know, the biggest factors of education are the parents level of education, income, race. Um, Those things are always going to exist in American society. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think we're always going to have, you know, your better schools, your schools that are not performing as well, your students that go on, you know, to your fancier, more prestigious colleges and other students that just don't have the ability to go there. Um, I talk about it in class all the time. I do. I, we talk about, like, racism. Will there always be racism in the United States? And unfortunately, I say yes. I think we've made, obviously, improvements. There's a lot to work on. but. I think we're always going to have issues like race, always issues like class. Um, we're just, that's our society we live in.
1: And further, not, not, uh, further than just like parents' income, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, different parents', you know, social habits. Like, uh, you know, the assumption that you can make that students will come to school fed. Uh, that they uh, will have lunch throughout the day. Um, I'm, I'm finding out myself, even in, in my school, the number of students who don't have lunch is l- larger than I n- initially thought. But, I mean, just the assumptions that students are fed and they're hydrated, that when they get home, that there's two parents, that it's stable enough in, in the environment, if there are two parents, that they've got uh, places to study, when they're home that that are that are quiet and conducive to actual learning and, and there's so many factors that are well outside of school that that really I think impede that gap from closing uh
0: the, the counterpoint to some of the things you're saying um, all of you um is that um if we're not striving to close an achievement gap that could lead to lowered expectations um i think um uh, l- l- specifically responding to what you said earlier, Lynn, about the idea of striving for an A grade, how that's not necessarily um, something that maybe you should do for all students. Um, and, I, and I may be paraphrasing. I don't want to paraphrase you wrongly. But um, is there a fear that if you're not striving to close an achievement gap, that it will lead to lowered expectations for students, um, especially students of color?
2: Well Let me say this off the bat. Students of color are... Uh saddled with lowered expectations, period. Um, We have uh, teachers of all races who treat students of color as if they don't have the same drive and determination and capabilities, innate or otherwise, that would enable them to be successful in these areas. And I'm going to say that that is wrong and incorrect. What I can say is what, to me, the achievement gap measures is something different than what it needs to measure. So... Really, when we talk about tenacity, when we talk about um, the ability to think outside the box, when we talk about um, other skills that are needed to close these gaps, we don't have programs to teach those things. To me, children of color are experimented on often, and I've said this uh, quite a lot that if there's a new program that comes out, they don't take it to schools, uh, white schools, with uh, a lot of already high-achieving students, they take it to a a school with kids of color or a high-poverty school that they can experiment on. So if you are a kid of color, uh, I can just say here in the Kansas City area, you've already experienced three or four different curriculums. You might have experienced three or four different, depending on who the superintendent is, which directions uh, the students or the school district wants to go in. It's always in flux. And in order to close this gap that we talk about, you need to have consistent, high-quality, high-valued educators teaching children in an environment that asks them to uh, to raise the standard of their learning. And our students do that. They can do that.
0: Uh, to, to wrap this up, I mean, Lynn, would you even want – do you want your students to close the achievement gap as it has been defined in this conversation? Is that even a goal of yours?
2: Yes, it is. Yeah. It, it is because to, to – to be honest, that is the way in which we're measured. So um, I'm not going to be able to change that. What I can do is provide them with the proper education to help them understand why it is important to close the achievement gap. A lot of times we want students to do things without a why. Nowadays, you have to explain why to your kids. Otherwise, they're not going to buy into it.
1: I Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the big whys is going to be, it's just like, this is one of the of the mechanisms by which doors are opened and you want that exactly. you want kids to have entree into that.
0: Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas city students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at Kaufman FDN. Well, the last couple of episodes, we've talked about the massive college admissions cheating scandal. Now to cheating of a different and wholly more universal kind, plagiarism. Who among us as teachers has not dealt with an instance of students plagiarizing someone else's work for a big assignment? I know for me as a former English teacher, discovering a student plagiarized a big paper or project was usually one of the more frustrating and dispiriting parts of the job. The knee-jerk reaction is to take it personally And assume the worst, that the student maliciously copied another's work because they were lazy or uncaring or simply wanted to make you, the teacher, mad. But experts suggest this is often not the case and that plagiarism, while a serious offense for sure, can still be a moment for learning for both the teacher and student. Phi Beta Kappa, the professional journal for teachers, a few years back published an article, The Top Ten Reasons Students Plagiarize. Now, number 10 is they're lazy and number nine is they're panicked. But there are some other reasons that might have a teacher a bit more empathetic. For instance, number seven, they think they're supposed to reproduce what the experts say. Number six, they have difficulty integ- uh, integrating source material into their argument. Um, so the plagiarism you've experienced, we have we have an English teacher, uh, Kevin, history teacher. Uh, Lynn, I- I'd like to also get your experiences as well as someone who's taught computers before at the middle school level. Um, how much of the plagiarism that you've experienced is is of the more malicious variety, maybe just sloppy or lazy work, and how much of it is due to simply a lack of knowledge about how to write and do research and make an argument?
1: Well, I have kind of an interesting story. I mean, I have several interesting stories, but one story that, that comes to mind is uh, in the earlier days of uh, you know, students being on the Internet all of the time and certainly before something like Turnitin.com or, or some of those plagiarism uh, device, checking devices. Uh, much like a lot of English teachers during the time period, if a student wrote something that seemed sort of out of character, like everything seemed to be super awesome in terms of their... Syntax or like their thoughts, their ideas, and you're like that does never sounded like (laughs) that student before. So you go and you Google it and you put it in there, and then you find it was written by somebody who was in Harvard or something, right? You know, it's a Spark Notey kind of thing. That's when Spark Notes started to be big and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you could catch students that way, and then you could just lay it in front of the student, and you could say like look at it, right? So the story that I'm referring to is the one time I did this for this very, very quiet girl who uh, just would love to be part of the woodwork and not really um, be in my class or, or talk at all. And really, when I laid that in front of the girl, maintaining that she didn't plagiarize that, even though it was as clear as day, right? I mean, like yellow highlighted and everything, right? Got the parents in. I am sitting there with parents and student and the parents are saying she didn't plagiarize this. So they, right, and I said I said, but can but can you see that like substantively it's the same, and in many cases it's word for word, and it's like that's a coincidence. Yeah. And I was I mean I was completely gobsmacked because it was a, what can you do when. When you, I mean, you can't teach this, you can't teach the kid the lesson that you want to teach when the parents are going to sit there and say, not our child.
0: And you, so you don't think that student walked away with any sort of lesson about.
1: <laughs> no, I sure walked away with something though, <laughs> so, you know, but, uh, so that's, that's, that's interesting. That's uh, one of those outlier stories. Uh,
0: Kevin, how often do you have to deal with instances of plagiarism among your students? Um, you teach a high school level sophomore history course. so I'm, I'm assuming there's some research papers and, and some other assignments like that.
3: Sure, I, I definitely see copying on a, on a daily basis. You know, where it's just they'll be working on a worksheet or reading a primary and secondary source, and it's obvious when it's you know you're asking an open ended question that's asking for a student's opinion, and both students who sit next to each other in you know their little pod have the same exact answers. And just as Luanne said, I mean, you know what are we, in March, so we're you know, almost three-fourths done with the school year, you know how your students write. And one of my favorite things is kind of busting them. When they use vocab that you know that they don't know what that <laughs> word means, and you ask them, and they flat out, they can't tell you, and then they giggle, and they make, you know, sort of like, you got them. Um the thing with plagiarism is I feel like when I was in college, it was a lot bigger of a deal, but a lot of the articles we read also, it's just, it's not as punished or it might just be viewed as kind of like a slap on the wrist. Now it's like kind of you're waving your finger. Just don't do that. You know, I, I'm never going to take it to the principal or anything like that. It's more or less just please come up with your own thoughts. It's very obvious for us as teachers. Now we know how you write. We can use Google, um, but one of the ways I try to combat it is, especially with writing with primary and secondary sources, is I'll give all the students the same. We do a lot of what are called DBQs, these document-based questions. So they'll have three or four of these primary, secondary sources. So they have all the same research to write a two or three paragraph response off of. So there's no need for them to um, you know, go on the internet and plagiarize. So that's one of the ways I try to fight back against plagiarism, but it's, it's very obvious.
0: Luann, you got something to say?
1: Well, it's Kevin, when, when you mentioned, you know, the whole, like come up with your own thoughts. And I was just thinking back to myself as a high school student and becoming a a college student. and, And like, what does that mean when you're trying to be taught what that's like to be this thing called a critical thinker? So, I think what a lot of students go through is some of one of the things I went through, which is how can I have thoughts? How can I have thoughts and how can I like have a seat at this table? Because if I'm looking at what somebody else has published and they're older and they're smarter than I am, um, how do I use them within my argument versus just like, not sort of like in a patchwork way, spit back what their argument actually is. So that was
0: my question. So, I mean, when, when is plagiarism that you catch due to a student just, like, not knowing how to integrate in the thoughts of, of, a, of a professional paper or a source or a document that they've read and simply just copying and pasting because that's what they think you need to do?
1: Super glad you asked that, actually, because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with my students at this level, trying to get them ready to uh, – well. To write well, but I mean, on the long run, but to pass an AP exam, you know, in the in the short run, because they're doing a synthesis essay, which is some sort of like baby, you know, research kind of paper. And um, I will trot out this problem to the students every year, and I really condense it down, but I, but I do refer to myself, and I, I talk about how I went to a high school that was really non-accredited, and we didn't really have accredited teachers, and it was parochial where I was. Um, in another state and my, my parents paid a lot of money to send all three of us there. And it was supposed to be college prep and because I was a good student and a good kid and all those good things uh, and a good writer, I didn't really understand that when I borrowed somebody else's ideas, but I paraphrased and I put them in my own words because I was trepidatious anyway, and I did that, and I thought, good job, me, and I kind of didn't know that I was supposed to cite that, right, or document it, however you want to say that parenthetical documentation is, and because I wasn't checked by any of my teachers— due to... When you the, were in high right. school. Right. Yeah, I wasn't because they were like, she knows what she's doing. She's a smart kid, right? Mm. My papers were models. So my brother comes along after me and I'm in I'm in college and my, uh, my papers are the models that other students are supposed to follow and they had been plagiarized. And the only reason I knew that was because when I did a very big paper when I was an undergraduate and up for big awards as an undergraduate, my natty professor sat all weekend in the library and checked all of my whatever, 20 or 30 sources. <laughs> because it was a big paper and he comes back to me he's like academic dean and he's like um you plagiarized and i said uh what because i don't do that you were
0: mortified (laughs) right
1: and then he said you know what this is such a big deal we're not really sure that you're not going to get expelled and i mean i was like i was the scholarship kid and i was going to go to grad school and i was like in a in a second as all of my dreams were dying and i had to beg and i had to I did. I had to beg and I had to get remediated. I needed a tutor. I had to say, I fell through the cracks. They said, where were you in high school? Why didn't you pay attention? And I said, I I did. I I really, I am this kid. And I, by the grace of God, right, I really learned it. So what I want to do as a teacher is help students in any way, shape or form that I can talk to them about that kind of issue because I think they kind of know. If I'm citing somebody and, and like using somebody else's words, I better do that mm-hmm. unless I really just want to make you mad or see what I can get away with. But the kids that have to recast it in their own language but understand that the idea is not originally theirs, that that really credit needs to be given where credit is due, um, that I, I spend a great deal of time wa- working on that. Scale. Uh,
0: uh, you and Kevin have touched upon uh, something else that I, I want to return to. I do want to bring uh, about the the idea of plagiarism the seriousness with which it's taken nowadays but I did want to bring in Lynn um you've taught computer science before the middle school level um we've been talking to Kevin and the uh, two teachers English and history um so presumably there may be more writing in those co- courses but uh, do you still see uh, cheating or what would what would be called plagiarism in some of the courses you've taught
2: well, there's nothing like a middle school student, a computer, and the uh, control and pace keys. <laughs> they just seem to go hand in hand. And so, so yes, is your answer. So, so, yes. Um, the one thing I can say, the one thing that I have done to help combat plagiarism, not only go into it as a lesson, but also when we have a subject that we're going to be writing about or researching, I have a big conversation and get opinions from kids and I have them write their opinions first. Because what we do in elementary school is we do a lot of uh, call and repeat. You know, our kids just sort of regurgitate. We don't teach them how to critically think. In middle school is when they start learning how to take those skills and critically think. So to ask a kid in seventh grade what their opinion is, they look like a deer in headlights. Mm -hmm. But eventually, if they're safe in your classroom, if you have that relationship, they'll start letting you know what their opinion is and you can use that opinion for the basis to help them research what it is they're and looking
0: And so, yeah, so take that a little bit further. So how does getting them to state their opinion first help to, um, you know, plagiarize proof in assignment or, or help tamp down potential plagiarism?
2: Because then I know what their thought process is. I know that they're not going to use multisyllabic words to explain <laughs> anything. I know that for the most part, I'm gonna take that first paper they write with their opinion and compare it to that final It gives, project. It gives you an insight and it gives into it. It
0: gives me a roadmap.
1: So it you gives under- you an insight
3: into what they're thinking. Yeah, and you yes.
1: understand how they express themselves. Yes, right. Yes, totally.
3: So my high school, I would say, is about average or slightly above average compared to other Chicago public high schools. This year I've I finally have, I'd say, some very high-achieving students. They've given me some higher level classes. And one of the things I've thought about a lot this year is how much am I preparing, so these are sophomores, how much am I preparing them for college, or let's say they go on to be a history major in college like I was. I think a lot of the content that I cover I do a very good job of, and I think that it's maybe harder in some of way, some the ways that I taught when I was a sophomore in high school, but to make a confession, I don't feel like I do a good job in terms of teaching citations and how to do a bibliography, footnotes, endnotes, just different things like that. Maybe because I have to admit it, it, it's boring. I don't know if I kind of want the English teachers. no, know, Luann. Sorry not to call you out here. That's maybe your thing, but well, like yeah. it's just—it's yeah, not. Like she it's, wants to talk. <laughs> it, to, to me, it's—I'm talking about reconstruction right now. That's more exciting than you need to put this footnote here. Or, and I think so much of it too is these kids get so much of their information now from the internet. So it's like, I don't even know how to cite a website. That was just kind of coming into fashion when I was in high school and college. Like, I remember, you know, going through textbooks or uh, secondary sources from the library. So I don't feel I'm doing a good job preparing them for, like, a college paper, which I had to write. And that's that's something I, Lu- I hate to admit. Lu-Ann
0: does – yeah, Luann does want to say something. I will interject sure. real, real quickly, I mean, back – to my days as a high school English teacher, I mean easybib dot com was is a is a great website yeah. for learn uh just having kids plug in their yeah. sources and it will spit out um a, a works cited entry for not just books or magazines or periodicals or, or research journals, but like a website or um even something more um kind of newfangled and, and, and obscure that maybe you don't know how to cite. But Luann, you wanted to, to to respond to Kevin.
1: Well, Kevin, I totally agree with what you're saying about how this can be boring, and the reason I was kind of excited about it is because this is one of the of the things that I have done professional development over. I've gone out to other districts in my own district, and I have uh, talked about this. How do you actually teach students how to cite and have it be a thing that sticks and have it be a, something that is less boring because I'm with you. It is, I mean, how do you do that stuff? It's it's not fun. And with so, all the
0: other standards that you have to meet as well, it right. can often feel like, you know, teaching them how to do work cited is like the afterthought, the final thing that kind of falls into place right. if you ever get there.
1: Uh, yeah. So what, what I like to do, uh, and I'll just in super condensed form, is what I like to do is I like to really start that whole kind of conversation by talking about, you know, what's called the the, the Burkean parlor, um, that sort of like that, that metaphor and, and just basically in a nutshell, what it is. Um, some scholar wrote in, gosh, in, you know, after the depression, (laughs) Burke, um, basically that, you know, you you imagine that you're at a parlor and you you imagine uh, so nowadays it would be some sort of like you know, internet chat room or some message room or whatever, but you're at a cocktail party and so basically what you're doing is you're hearing a lot of people talk about a topic and they all have different things to say and what you do is that you sit there and you wait when you enter the party, you enter this parlor to figure out who's saying what, who's on what side, who's being tangential, who's off topic, who's and then you do a thing like put your or in. That's the, that's the phrase that's said. So then you have something to say, and it's kind of based on the tenor of the conversation. And then you do that. You put your or in, you, you participate, and then you leave knowing that the conversation is still going to be vigorous even after you're gone. So that's a way to talk about entering into, say, the great conversation. Now, how does that look in, in, a, in a student way? One of the things I like to do to help make less boring teaching citations would be. It's kind of like what Lynn talked about. What do you think? Give the kids a topic. Give the kids a question and say, you know what? Write your answer. You write something that you want to say about X, Y, or Z, and you can shape it any way that you wish. And then you can devise an exercise by which whatever the kids write, some other kid has to look at and then take notes over Take uh, in his own words some of what has been said, or and quote particular words and phrases that are kind of particular, right to that that to that student. And then they, after they do this for a while, what they're doing is they're working with the students themselves as sources. So then, when they have a bunch of notes, because what they've done is that they've read a bunch of other people's thinkings about something and then you say now you need to weave this all together into your own particular argument what they're now doing is they're working with their classmates work and now they care and so they'll pay attention and when you talk about parenthetical citation they're like oh my gosh i'm gonna cite my best friend or they're gonna be like i wonder how joey is gonna cite me and so they do pay attention to how that citation system works because they get to be the authors
0: uh Okay, moving on to the final segment. Out of all the questions teachers get every day they're at school, here's a question I can almost guarantee our teachers have heard in some form or another recently. Miss, can I go to the bathroom? It's one of those constant background annoyances to teachers' daily lives, when and how to allow students to go to the bathroom during class. On one hand, everyone eventually has to go, and even as adults, we can empathize with having to step out and do our business, but as a teacher, you don't want students to miss valuable class time. Isn't that what passing periods are for anyway? And in the back of your mind, you suspect students may not really have to go and are just looking for an excuse to go meet a friend or duck out during um, a bit of work time. So, turns out this is not a frivolous dilemma. A new survey of K-12 school nurses suggests most schools have no formal bathroom policies, and health advocates warn that restricting bathroom use could actually be teaching students what are called unhealthy toileting habits, or even worse, creating or exacerbating health problems like urinary tract infections that will stick with kids long after they're grown up. So, um, the survey I'm referring to was done by the Society for Women's Health Research, surveyed more than 360 school nurses. Less than 8% of those nurses said their school had a formal written policy regarding student bathroom use. That's not a surprise. I've never worked at a school that had a formal bathroom policy. Nearly two-thirds of respondents said their school had no policy whatsoever. So let's start there. Does your school have a formal policy about kids going to the bathroom? We don't. We don't uh, have no. Lou has looking at me like I'm crazy. No. No, no, no.
1: Kids gotta go, man. Kids gotta go. Yeah. I mean,
3: there's, there's no formal policy at my school, but I, I think you guys will get a kick out of this. So our bathroom pass, or each uh, teacher has one of those neon yellow construction vests that has your class <laughs> or your uh, room number on the back of it, and that's what the students are supposed to wear when they go to the bathroom. Oh, uh, this this thing is gross. It's a petri dish. I just washed mine uh, this week. The kids don't even really want to wear it. Um, but that's supposed to indicate that they're going to the bath. And there, there's there's no there's no policy. And it's funny, I don't know if Lynn and Luann have experienced this too. You have kids who they go to the bathroom every day in your class. And there's some kids where it's like, okay, we both need the break. So you go ahead for your five, 10 minutes, you do your laps, and then you come back. And it's like, I know you're not going to the bathroom, but we both need that break. So.
0: <laughs> well, th- th- to that point, do you have uh, your own classroom policies about student bathroom use? Luann, big am, thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, I
1: absolutely do. Um, well, to to be fair, I, a lot of the, I, I think some of this can really come down to, to classroom management, right? right. And well, this it is, is a classroom management. Right, issue, but yeah. no, but I mean, I'm just saying this is about like the way that the teacher does class. So if the teacher's got good rapport with the students, and if the teacher is somebody that the students sort of like know and respect, and like, if we're going to be gone from class, we're going to miss some good stuff. And, uh, we're busy and we're learning and that kind of thing. For me, I'm assuming that that's true. I mean, I'm hoping that that's true with my students, but what they ought to go, they have to go. And one of the things that I know students don't have to do, because we didn't when we were in college and when we are adults and beyond, is you never, ever have to ask anybody to go. And I can see if you're a younger student doing that, but like I'm teaching 16 and 17 year olds and these kids are going to be able to vote pretty soon and be adults. And it's like the fact that they have to ask me in and of themselves, I understand why, But so I I shouldn't maybe say this, but I don't even like to write a pass to go. Um, But what I do do with them, you know, to joke with them is I'll say, if you're stopped in the hall, who do you say, where do you say you're from? I mean, so they understand what the shtick is, which is you never give me away, right? (laughs) So that they understand that like I'm with them. So I said, make a, I don't care who you say, but you have to say you're from somebody else. And then as they're leaving the classroom, I'll say things like, you know, don't knock over a freshman. Uh, you know don't have sex in the hall uh, no, really you know no, and, you know and don't uh, don't be smoking anything you know don't be doing that and you know and I'll just I'll get make it more and more outlandish as they leave so it's kind of like that I that I kind of get them and I think because I may make be a sort of okay thing I mean I don't really have problems you know they'll come back and I mean a lot of the times I'm 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 timing them over things because we're getting ready for an right. AP exam anyway. So I don't really see that as kind of an issue. But I will tell you, because I have asked students, um, do you ever get stopped in the hall for anything? And then they're like, you know what, Miss Fox, if you just kind of like walk with purpose, you know what you're doing. Nobody ever stops you for anything at all. So that's just a... <laughs> uh,
0: well, health advocates say there can potentially be serious consequences to restricting bathroom use. Um Rebecca Nabel with the Society for Women's Health Research, which did this survey of school nurses, says, and I'll quote, restricting access to the bathroom forces students into unhealthy toileting habits, such as holding in urine, which may create health problems that will follow students into adulthood and decrease their quality of life, end quote. She goes on to cite things like the weakening of bladder muscles and increased susceptibility to urinary tract infections. My goodness. That's serious. Ooh.
2: Well, here, here's the thing. If it's that, they probably have a medical history of that. That's yeah. already in the records. But one of the things that I encourage my um, new teachers to do is to have a list, and when a student has to go to the restroom, ask them to sign out, give them a pass, and do that openly for the first two or three weeks. You then get a list of the students that have to go every day, yep. and the students that don't have to go that often. That student that has to go every day, that's a phone call to the parent saying, hey, um, I understand Johnny has to use the restroom every day at this time. Is there a medical concern that we need to know about? Mm -hmm. I can say nine out of ten times the parent is like, no. (laughs) He (laughs) he just wants to get out of class. And then it becomes a different thing. That's the conversation that you can have. But, you know, you can use, uh, I don't want to say data against kids, but when you give them free reign and open reign, they pretty much tell on themselves and can tell you who they are going to be and and then you can use that information to work out a plan with them. Oh, that's I that's well said,
1: I think. Jeez. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, before we get to kids these days, let's tell you some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Metro Nashville Public Schools is taking some heat for banning teachers from using popular crowdfunding site Donors Choose. I don't know if any of you have used Donors Choose before, but last year. Uh, Donors choose reportedly funded nearly $160 million worth of classroom projects nationwide, but a Nashville district spokesperson tells Ed Week the site could be, quote, problematic because of a lack of adequate controls, end quote, so they have banned the use of it among their teachers. Over the past decade, more than 1,000 Nashville teachers have raised more than $1.5 million for projects on Donors Choose. Despite ballooning costs and crippling levels of student debt, a majority of young Americans say a four year college degree is still worth it. A new survey from American Public Media and the Heckinger Report finds nearly 60% of 18 to 35 year olds say a four year college degree is worth the cost. The average annual cost for in state students at four year public universities now tops. but college graduates are likely to make more money over their lifetimes and less likely to be unemployed than those who do not go to college. So it's a balancing act, and many young Americans still say it's worth it. And teachers in Kentucky are fearing retribution after the state's education commissioner sought the names of teachers who called in sick in order to protest at the state capitol recently. At least 10 districts have been forced to close multiple days over the past month as hundreds of teachers called in sick in order to protest several education-related bills at the state capitol. One teacher told the Associated Press the education commissioner's action was a, quote, intimidation tactic, end quote. Those are some of the other stories that have caught our eyes around the education world over the past week coming up kids these days but first this episode of no wrong answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation no wrong answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for like us at facebook follow us on twitter just search for the no wrong answers podcast by fountain city frequency Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard on this episode, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Lynn, what are your kids into?
2: Well, you know, we've been on spring break for the past week, but I can't... Oh, lucky you. Yes, but I can say that prior to that... Uh, giving a shout out to the achievement gap. We, uh, we're practicing our MAP testing. Oh, the <laughs> so, the, the
0: Missouri uh, Assessment Program. Right? The... But the
1: kids are not really into that, are they? <laughs> no, I mean no. Not at all. <laughs> not at all into that. So, They're into not being into it, right? So, yeah. So
2: yes. Yeah, so. I would imagine
0: that will continue when you get back from spring break.
2: Uh, no, we're done with the practice portion. Okay. We uh, have to get ready for the real test. So that's going to look a little different, hopefully.
0: Okay. Luann, you got back from your spring break this past week, so you've been back for five days as of this taping. What are your kids into?
1: Well, they're not into school, so that's <laughs> one thing. We're
0: um, two for two with you and Lynn here. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's that, is it that time of the year? It's almost April. Yeah. It is spring. Oh, my it, my is spring. Yeah, it, it is totally, spring. Yeah, it it, totally it spring is <laughs> that.
1: Uh, But, I mean, like my kids, like, uh, you know, they'll talk about the Umbrella Academy uh, the, that's a show that's on netflix <laughs> okay. and uh, ellen page stars in that so um it's based on some comic books and so they'll talk about that and it's it's and you know it's an interesting show
0: i feel older and older <laughs> every day i had not heard of that show
1: oh go see the umbrella academy on netflix, netflix. Yeah. they're gonna have season two.
0: Whoop. No, there's even multiple seasons yeah. great uh and kevin what are your kids into in chicago
3: Sure. I feel like my students this year are very fashionable, are very fashion-forward. Uh, one of the clothing lines... It may just that be that I've you're heard...
0: getting less fashionable as you grow older. <laughs>
2: don't, don't take that,
3: Kevin. It could <laughs> be very true. Ask my wife. But um, anyway, they're wearing this uh, clothing line called Thrasher. Uh, I don't know if your students are wearing it in Kansas City. So I looked it up because I was like, what is this? And it's uh, its like a skating kind of mm. magazine and... Uh, skating line but i know that my students are not skateboarders <laughs> but i was kind of thinking about how when i was in high school i'd shop at pacific sunwear and there's no really surfing in the midwest yeah. but you just wore that clothing like billabong and some of the other ones so thrasher that's the hip yeah. clothing high school
0: yeah i can empathize I, kevin i had a pair of uh, board shorts when i was in high school Whoa. <laughs> and I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest. And I grew up in Kansas City. Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: wow. No reason to wear board shorts. Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: I also had a uh, dyed blonde hair too for a year learning so much about <laughs> you Kyle
1: learning so much I, I could see that Kyle and the, the, the <laughs> topped off by the
0: topped off by the puka shell necklace oh I, my
1: god so you take the whole the 70s 90s. so count
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> this was the late 90s folks uh, well thanks to our teachers this week Lynn Shipley Kevin Vanderporten in Chicago and Ann Fox as well back here in Kansas City thanks as always to Matt Hodap who produces the podcast thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio Remember, go to our website, NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com and sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. We did this last week with the final line is the teachers say it. So remember, kids, until next time. Be nice to to your your teachers. teachers. We can try that again. Yes, because Luanne did it last week. She was here last week.
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) That's good. So uh, remember, kids, until next time. Be Be nice nice to your teachers.